0: We'll be reading the entirety of this book, book of Jude. It only has 25 verses. Just as a reference point, we have not read out of Jude in our Bible reading for some time. And we want to do that this morning as we get into the uh, more difficult aspects of what Jude has to share with his readers. The letter of Jude. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints." For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago are marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord, God, and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these have given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain, have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, The seventh from Adam prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. "...looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever." Amen. Well, we begin our study this Sunday by doing a quick overview of last Sunday with one particular element that I did not feel I emphasized enough last Sunday. As we considered the creepers that come into the church and into our lives, into our minds and hearts, because if we're honest, I think all of us have the Capacity within us to become one of these kinds of individuals, to make excuses for sin, to make allowances for disobedience to God's word. Uh, we can contrive all kinds of theological loopholes for ourselves. And so this same warning about others teaching this way needs to be applied to ourselves as well. But one facet of the grace of God that I wanted to reiterate this morning before we press into verse 5 of Jude is that the grace of God, and I made a statement last Sunday, that the grace of God's greatest benefit in our salvation was not so much the forgiveness of our sins that was great, there is no doubt about it, I do not diminish that, but rather it is the giving us, the granting us, of righteousness. That we have a new spirit within us, that we who were once dead in trespassing and sins have been made alive. And so it wasn't just a neutral, uh, God's act to neutralize us, to undo the sin, but to make us something better. To put in us righteousness, and therefore, to claim the grace of God and then sin is to deny the greatest work of God's grace, which is to grant us righteousness. And so it is in righteousness that we walk, and that is how we, we best glorify the grace of God. Not by increasing the amount of sin that God has to forgive, that would be a focus on the shed blood of Christ, certainly but in terms of the fullness of our salvation is in the granting us of his righteousness, that we should walk in that. And that is where our perspective lies when we understand the grace of God. We have focused so much that grace is about forgiving sin. And we have forgotten that grace is giving gifts. And the gift that he gave us was not just forgiveness. Uh, that was really more of his mercy. The grace that he gave us was the gift of righteousness, that we have the spirit of righteousness in us, and therefore it is by the grace of God that bringeth salvation. Uh, Titus the, Paul tells Titus has appeared to all men, teaching us. The grace of God teaches us not to sin more, but to live more righteously. If we've really studied grace thoroughly and understood that the grace of God has given us righteousness, has made us new creatures. And therefore, old ways have passed away and all things have become new, that we have a different outlook on life. That rather than serving the flesh, we want to serve God. That rather than serving the world, we want to serve the kingdom of God. That rather than serve the evil one, uh, we want to serve the righteous one. And this is defining true ministry for uh, those of the word. That if we are really students of the Word of God and recipients of the grace of God, we would never use it as an excuse to allow ourselves to do anything outside of the will of God. Uh, we would recognize that once I wander or slide into that condition, that there is no excusing it using my Bible or any attribute of God. Now, Having talked about the grace of God, again, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on that, and I've chosen, uh, because the the real force of Jude is coming on us, to not spend several weeks talking about the grace of God, because I think we have a lot that we've already studied about that historically and in our culture. Uh, What I really want to understand is the balance point, that if we really grasp the grace of God, we must also understand that there are other attributes of God. And this is the danger point that we get caught in and get trapped in, is that we begin to study a single attribute of God and we get wrapped up in it and we go deep and headlong into it and we begin to consider that as the only attribute of God or maybe the highest attribute of God. Whenever I hear people say, what is the highest attribute of God, I just kind of look at it and say, well, that's a dumb question. I say, there are no dumb questions. Yes, there are. There are dumb questions, all right? Yeah, you've been in junior high long enough. You know, um, poor Mr. Roberts. He's had, he's years and years and years, and he's still in junior high. Um, you, You get lots of dumb questions. This is a dumb question. What is the highest attribute of God? It is foolishness to even think there is such a thing. For the attributes of God are all perfection in him. And how can one perfection be greater than another perfection? They cannot be. And in fact, as soon as you elevate one of the attributes of God, whether it be his love, his grace, his holiness, his sovereignty, as soon as you elevate any one of those above the others, you diminish God and you have relegated him and narrowed him. God is a culmination, is not defined by his attributes, but rather um, he is the, the one the I am. Who is known by his attributes, all of them. And what these false teachers did was they came in and taught one attribute in isolation. This is what gets you into trouble. And this happened in our country years ago. It was God is love, and it's still that way, that the, the overflow of the 60s and 70s is still evident, um, even though it's been 50 years, it's still evident. Oh, God is love. And you still hear that argument, how can a loving God do this, that, and the other thing? And it's because he's not just a loving God. And so once we focus in on one attribute, God is love, God is love, God is love, and we have studied it to the nth degree and ignored everything else about who God is, what he, how he works, and how we can relate to him, uh, we end up in theological quagmire. Now we're in quicksand. Because we made God's love, now he can't do any of the things he did in the Old Testament, can he? He can't judge. Because God is love. And so whenever we take one attribute of God and elevate it and, and focus on it, we are always going to lend ourselves to error of living. Always comes to that. And so, Jude here is going to take us from the grace of God, and he doesn't even teach us about it. He doesn't want it. The problem for his readers is that's all they've learned is the grace of God. Grace, 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 grace. And they've really only talked about one facet of grace, and he could spend a lot of time saying, you need to know God's grace more. Let me explain it to you. We saw Paul try to do that in Romans as well as in Corinthians and other places. Um, And we're going to look at Corinthians again this week, also. But what Jude wants to do is to really counterbalance all this grace talk you've heard from these dreamers. It says word for them later on. He has some interesting names for them. For these dreamers, is to counterbalance it by reminding you that God is more than grace. So much more. And so now he's going to take this central part of his letter. And remind you that God is judge. God isn't just grace. He is also judgment. Because he is not only love, but he is holy. Grace is the expression of God's love. So is judgment. But and we focus on it as an expression of God's love. His goodness. Judgment is the expression of of his holiness. Now, does that mean his grace isn't holy? Yes, it is. All the attributes of God define all the other attributes of God. So his love is holy, righteous, just, good, omniscient, omnipotent. Every description you have of the character of God applies to each of the attributes of God. And so we come to Jude's Contrast. And he's not contrasting God, but he's counterbalancing. That's probably be a better word. He's counterbalancing all this grace teaching you're hearing from these guys who are giving you permission to live ungodly lives, to live like the world, and God's still going to accept you because his grace is now going to be counterbalanced by reminding you by examples of the full nature of God. To remind ourselves that God isn't just grace and mercy, but He's also holiness, righteousness, and judgment. And before we go into that and look at it, we want to uh, spend some time in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word before us and the challenge that is there for us to grasp its meaning, to let it weigh upon our minds and hearts, and and the necessity for us to embrace it. and None of these three facets are within my strength to do. So we pray for your spirit to work. And what is, this, what is spoken and how it is spoken, but is also in how it is received. It might be according to your word of truth, that it might have the effect of godliness among your people, that your name might be praised, and nothing would be said that would tarnish our understanding and idea of who you are. Thank you for your promise to help us to enter into your truth that we might walk in it. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. I want to remind you, Jude says, which tells you something. He's not talking to brand new baby Christians. He is talking to people who know some things about the Bible. And he's going to use three events, three examples, three occurrences um, that they already know about. And you might say, well, I don't have to go back to science from class. Yes, we do. We all need to do that every now and then. We all need to go back and be reminded of how God has revealed himself and worked. And it is fascinating how much you learn and understand as you do that of review, 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 review. Uh, That we make it our own that way. We make it a part of who we are. And so Jude says, I want to take time to remind you of some things that these false teachers don't do. You see, whenever you want to get just one side, you always ignore huge volumes of information that you really know, but you haven't been brought to your memory. You haven't been brought forward, oh, wait a minute, yeah, that's true too, and I hadn't thought about those things for a while. So Jude says, listen, you've heard about this grace, you've heard about this grace, and you've heard about this grace, and you have forgotten things that you have known because you haven't heard them taught recently. So let me remind you some things you already know. You knew it the first, he says, and it's not that they've forgotten this, though you once knew this, as though they, they had lost out on it. But basically, you already know this. I'm going to tell you things you already known, but you have forgotten. You have not come to this teaching with all of Scripture in your forefront of your thinking. You have allowed these people to pick and choose what they teach you with impunity. You've let them do it. And that's where the error comes from. We let people come in and they can use our Bibles, pick and choose a word here, a verse there, and come off with something that sounds really good. And then it's even better because I like the outcome. I can live how I please. I like the outworking of what they're teaching. And so therefore, since they got it out of the Bible, and it sounds great, and it really goes right along with how I already feel or believe or live, it must be truth. And Jude says, you've forgotten. That when you come to one passage of Scripture, it is written in the context of an entire book, which is written in the context of a series of books called the Bible. (laughs) Don't let these people do this to my word. Don't let them do this to God. That we can, that we're going to pick and choose and and cherry pick these little nuggets, put them together, and smash them and make them something that they weren't. Now, I've done this to young people before, and I've and uh, with interesting effects. When I was preaching at camps, and I would. Go into a series of sermons. I had them convinced of things. You can convince young people of almost anything if you use your Bible. And I knew it was something that they would really like. And I used a few verses, uh, more than just a few. I I used quite a few verses, but I just pulled them out of context. They all had similar verbiage. Um, And I convinced the entire camp of kids, over a 100 kids and counselors, that um, you should only pray in secret. Other verses? Now you're thinking through your mind, oh yeah, I think of some things. Go into your closet you know, where, and your father sees you in secret and those kind of verses, and there are others. And, um, and I went through them all and I had them raise their hand. You all see that that's a really biblical concept. You should never be praying in public. Yeah. And the adults in the room raised their hand. The camp counselors had them all raise their hand. Um, and uh, one youth pastor in the back, quite prepared, uh, I said, When I ask everybody to raise your hand, I want you to stand up and contradict me. So I asked everybody to raise their hand, they all raised their hand, and the youth pastor stood up and says, I don't agree with that. <gasps> you should you could hear a pin drop. Because there was a big gasp in. They're just staring at it like They didn't know I had set that up. What'd I do? I showed one side and ignored the rest of Scripture. And all those young people who were there because they were supposed to be students of the Bible and memorizing lots of Scripture followed my course of thinking and the Scripture verses and the little itty-bitty phrases that I pulled out and forgot everything they knew in the rest of the Bible. Do you know how many public prayers are recorded in the Bible? How many examples we have of public praying? And this is the situation with the grace of God. That as we study in depth one thing, we cannot unplug ourselves from all the rest of Scripture. And so Jude says, I'm going to have to take you back and remind you of things you know, but you haven't been thinking about in reference to what you've been studying. And the perverted way they've been studying it. They have been perverting the grace of God. They are twisting it into something it isn't because they have isolated it and now created a whole teaching around it that produces ungodliness. And ultimately rejects God. So, what are we going to remind him of? He's going to use three examples out of the Old Testament, for the most part. Um, He's going to then uh, compare the false teachers to these three examples. We're going to handle just one example today. I'm going to take some time to remind you of who our God is, because I think we have lost track of it a lot in our society, this facet. I don't want to overemphasize it to the point that we forget that God is also loving, good, merciful, and gracious. We're not going to lose track of that. We're going to stay tied to that. But we're going to follow Jude's lead here, and we're going to look at these three examples on three different Sundays. And But I want to jump down after verse 5, before we get to verse 5, I mean, but I want to jump down to verse 8, because this really is what the point of these examples are, is that these dreamers, it says, do three things. So we have three examples of the three things that are the outworking of these kinds of errors. That if God judged these in the past, he is certain to judge them in the present, and he is predictably certain to judge them in the future. Here we go. They defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries or glorious ones, um, high ones. And so he's got three examples out of the Old Testament that, that you're aware of, you're familiar with, that paint a very different picture of God than the picture that these false teachers are painting of God, where they have twisted just a single attribute and perverted the nature of God by doing so, and thus perverted Christian living into something that is hideous to God. So this is what he's trying to show, is that while they... Sound good, they're actually defiling the flesh. They're actually rejecting authority in their life. And this is going to be played out a little bit later in Jude with another example that's going to really hit you. I'm just going to warn you, it's like six months from now, but it's going to really nail you. It's not six months, but when you only get to preach once a week, it really slows you down. I much prefer it once. No, you know, to count something like that. Once a week. I get one shot at Jude a week. Um, every day would be great. Then we could get through, you know, a book every, I don't know, three months instead of three years. But um, we're going to look at this later on. It's going to, you're going to go, oh. Okay. And I've been watching it because I'm I'm way up there. I'm, I'm already studying that portion. And I'm, I know where, what's going to happen. And uh, you poor people. I'm sorry. we're not going to get off base the other direction. We're going to stay in touch with God's grace, goodness, love, and mercy. But we need to be reminded of this other facet of God that is much more beneficial in terms of evaluating our lives. When you want to consider your ways, as the prophet said, if you want to consider, am I living righteously and godly in this present age. You are much better to evaluate that on the holy side of God than the love grace side of God. Because if you evaluate your life based upon the grace of God, you will always excuse unholy living. But when you evaluate your ways against the holiness of God, you are brought to repentance consistently. You should be brought to repentance by a study of God's grace as well when you think about what we said that grace, the greatest gift of grace is righteousness. What are you doing to tarnish the righteousness of Christ that he put on you? Invested in you. But here we go. We're going to look at the first example. The Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, the greatest, before Christ, the single most rehearsed and understood act, redemptive act of God's grace for his people is the Exodus. It is celebrated annually by Israel by commandment to remember the wonderful work of God, what he did, against the Egyptians on your behalf so that you could be expelled from the, not just released, but expelled, and not only just sent out in some miserable state, but lavished with gifts from the Egyptians, please, we'll pay you to leave. It's kind of like, you know, University of New Mexico and all our coaches. We'll pay you to leave, okay? Well, that's how God graced Israel. Egypt paid them to leave. Why do you think they kept coming up with gold and silver and more gold and more silver and more gold and more silver when they're out there making idols and and making the temple? Because the Egyptians paid them to leave, lavishly. God redeemed them. He bought them and brought them out, and he opened the the Red Sea, and they walked across on dry, dry, dry ground. Ooh, ground, dry. Dry ground. He redeemed them. He saved them out of Egypt. This is his grace and his mercy. This is his love and his compassion for his people when they cried out to him by the Pharaoh that didn't know Joseph and had brought them into slavery. He heard them and he prepared a man, Moses, and he and He called him and trained him, sent him in and, and did all his wonders and power and might. And you say, wow, our God is great and he is on our side. He has redeemed me. We have experienced his miracles. I walked on dry ground right in the midst of the Red Sea with a wall of water on one side and a wall of water on the other side. And I traversed that and walked on the other side and watched Pharaoh and his chariots drown in the sea. I watched that. I I have been redeemed and God has brought me out as a free person and loaded me with the wealth of Egypt in the process and here I stand in the land of Midian in what is modern day Saudi Arabia and I'm here on this side out of the land of Egypt as a free person emboldened now because my God is great and has saved me. So certainly every single person who crossed the Red Sea on dry ground was redeemed by God and were called the people of God, the children of God and they had the promises of God laid out before them. If you're going to keep, you're going to go to Mount Sinai, you're going to hear the law, you're going to go up, and, and uh, he's got Canaan waiting for you. I love the description of, of Joshua and Caleb about the Canaanites. They don't have any, hand, God isn't protecting them at all. They're exposed because they don't have God on their side. That's your condition. You are the redeemed. God has, is leading you every day. You look over there and there's a cloud telling you whether you're going to stay or journey. Cloud stays over the temple, over the tabernacle. You stay put. Hey, we're going to stay here another day. Cloud starts to move. Oh, pack up. We're moving. We got new parts of the world to see. pillar fire every night. You have the presence of God among you. Certainly, you can live however you please. Look at how much God's grace has been extended to you. His power, His might, His presence. All the things we claim as Christians in the spiritual realm of our salvation. We claim the presence of Holy Spirit The power of the resurrection is what we claim as our own. We claim to be redeemed out of sin and be brought in as the children of God. We even call ourselves the sons of Abraham. And rightly so. So certainly once we get to this point, we are secure, we are safe, we are are ready to just kick back and wait for the wonderful things that God has in store for us and we have no further responsibilities. Well, let me remind you what happened once they crossed the Red Sea and came to the mountain. Numbers, chapter 11. Turn there, please. Numbers, chapter 11. This is before Sinai. Sinai. They hadn't gotten the law yet. Numbers chapter 11. Let's just take a little peek at what's going on here. Let's just read Numbers chapter 10, verses 35 and 36. This is what you did every time God said, let's move, and every time it was time to sit still. You ready? So it was, whenever the ark set out, that Moses said, rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, and you knew that your travels over for the day, he said, return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. Every time you go or come in, there you have God in the midst. This is the condition that Israel enjoyed every single day, having crossed the Red Sea. Verse, chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. The Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. Wait a minute. What happened to his love, grace, and mercy? Now he's angry. Does a loving God get angry? Not according to those daydreamers, who have fashioned their own God that can never get angry at you because he's so loving, he can't be, ever be angry. He's done all of this for Israel. He is in their midst, day and night, leading every step they take. And their action is to complain. We don't do that, do we? Well, you don't deny it. So, we do do that. God has given us so much, and then it's never enough. And just like us, Israel complained. And that fire that was protecting them and giving them an understanding of his presence and delivering them and doing great works and destroying your enemies... In verse 1 says, So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. The same fire that could destroy their enemies, the same power that could redeem them from Egypt, is the same power that God would use against his people in their sin. When they stopped, being thankful and considering their ways and started complaining, what have you done for us lately? Okay, you cross us. And you're going to hear this not just once. You're going to hear this dozens of times from the people to the point that occasionally Moses is like, Ugh. and God is like, Ugh. I'll just get rid of them all and start over with one. Repeatedly, they're going to complain against God and against Moses and against everything oh I wish we were back in Egypt I am so fed up with Christians that want to be like they were when they were sinners what are you thinking there's a reason you got away from that because it's just misery and death and destruction and emptiness why do you want to go back to that and that's what the author of Hebrews asks what are you doing What are you thinking that you want to go back to that? Don't you know, once you go back to that, there's no return. There is no return. I want you to notice that. These people had no return. The complainers were burnt to death by God. His fire kindled against them that was there to encourage them. It was there to protect them. It, it protected them from Pharaoh. Remember the pillar of fire moved over there and he couldn't come through it while they crossed the Red Sea. So the fire was there to protect them, but once they violated the holiness of God and the goodness of God and the grace of God, once you violate his redemption, then that which is there to protect you condemns you. Judges you. And here, they were consumed in the outskirts of the camp. The people cried to Moses. Moses prayed, prayed to the Lord, and the fire was extinguished. It was put out. God put it out. They had to name the place because the fire of the Lord burned among them. They were eating manna every day. We're not done. That's just the first instance, complaining. Then there's the whole idea of their flesh. Oh, we haven't eaten meat for so long. I'm just going to bite a piece of... This manna is sustaining life, and it's sweet like honey, the Bible says. Um, It's sweet, but I just want to bite into a piece of flesh. I just got to do it. And it says the mixed multitude, which means that there were Egyptians that joined them, coming out of Egypt and others. God says, I'll provide them meat. And Moses says, how are you going to do that? I mean, we don't have enough critters here to feed all these people that. um, How are you going to do that? And God says, oh, don't you think I can do this? Haven't I shown you my power enough? And he brings in quail, blows them in. This is at the end of the chapter. Verse 31, a wind come up, brought quail from the sea, left them fluttering near the camp, about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side. Do you realize what that just said? You walk for one day. How far can you walk for a, in a day? And that's how far fluttering quail were all over the ground and in the air. In each direction. Israel just had to keep walking and they keep gathering they gathered and they gathered, gathered, gathered and gathered and gathered and gathered and gathered and gathered and gathered as much meat as you could eat and more. God's grace supplied their need. It wasn't really even a need, was it? God's grace supplied their lust, their fleshly appetite. God's grace was every day manna. Every day, manna. That was your need. He met your need. His grace went beyond and gave you even more. You wanted meat? He gave you meat. Does that mean you get to eat it however you like? No. (sighs) The Bible says they didn't wait to cook it. And so while the meat was between their teeth, they hadn't even swallowed any of it, God... It says, verse 33, while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. Oh, God is gracious. He can forgive me of everything. He's so gracious, he has to forgive me of all my sin. And so we go out and sin willfully with the knowledge of the truth. And Hebrews reminds us, is there any sacrifice left for that sin? No. God's grace was to provide for their need and even more. Their response was to complain, and their response was to defile themselves, violate the law, and God was enraged. If we stopped in the middle of the verse again, we'd say, oh, God is so wonderful. He does more than meet our needs. He meets our wants. And I'm here to tell you that God has done so much more than meet your needs. So much more. How dare we ever complain before God and then use his provision in such a manner that ignores his holiness. God says, I don't want you to eat meat with its blood still in it because the life is in the blood. And In respect of the author of life, you do not eat raw meat. You do not drink blood. That's what the Canaanites did, and God is getting ready to eliminate them. You don't drink blood, you don't eat raw meat. You don't do it. This is before the law was given. They knew to do this. This is understood that this is how you honor and sanctify life because life is in the blood. They couldn't wait. They ripped open those those little birds and just started chewing on them. God says, that's enough. You're going to take my gracious provision and abuse it to your own gratification, I'm going to destroy you. You want to incite God to wrath? Receive all of His goodness and then live for yourself. This doesn't please God. This enrages God that we accept His goodness to us and then live for ourselves. We expend it all on ourselves. Can you imagine how enraged God is with most of our churches, which God provides great bounty for and they spend it all on themselves? I'm pretty sure he told us that we have bounty to care for others. That's part of too much is given, much is required. Whether it be material things, financial things, or other talents and abilities, um, whatever, that we do, is it not for our own interests? But when we take the bounty of God and that he has given us out of his grace and mercy, didn't have to do it, chose to give it to us, he already met our need, he doesn't have to do more, but he does because he's a great good God, and then we act as though we deserved it and we could do with it what we please? God is enraged. And they don't even get to swallow the meat before they have been judged by God. Verse 34, There they buried the people who had yielded to craving. That's the end of chapter 11. Certainly, we're done with that now. We figured it out. No, chapter 12, keep. We're going to 11, 12, 13, 14. We're just keep going right through the book of Numbers. Remember the other thing about rejecting authority, about speaking evil of glorious ones, of dignitaries, of people that God has elevated? Here we go. We're going to hit that last one in chapter 12. Speaking evil of dignitaries. And this is from right, right within the family. Here we go. Moses. Took another wife. She wasn't of Israelite birth. How do we know that? Because the Bible says so. It says he had married an Ethiopian woman. In chapter 12, verse 1. And here's their statement, verse 2. So they said, this is Miriam and Aaron, his sister and brother. Older sister and older brother, right? Here we go. Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. You ever think about the Lord hearing what you're saying about other people? So here's Moses' brother and sister, and they're offended by the fact that he has married an Ethiopian woman. They've taken issue with it. God hasn't taken issue with it, but they have. For whatever reasons, we don't know if it's because she's Ethiopian or because, well, we don't know why, but the indication is just because she wasn't a born and bred Israelite. She was a converted Israelite, Ethiopian. So they take issue with this, and because they're offended, they feel they can start to complain. But I want you to listen to their evil speech. Cause it's going to sound real familiar, and we're going to come back to it way down the road. So this is just a warning shot across your bow here. Are you ready? Here's the evil speech. What does it mean to speak evil of dignitaries? What does it mean to reject authority? Here's how it sounds. God has spoken through all of us. Does that sound familiar? So, and here's how it comes off in churches. And just because of last week's Sunday school class, um, we're going to counterbalance it here. Do all of us have the Spirit of God? Yes. Are all of us equally the children of God? Yes. Yes. But do not confuse that standing with a functional equality. God has called some to be prophets, some to be teachers, some to be pastors, some to be evangelists, not all. He has called some to authority in our functioning within the community of God, let us not confuse our positional equality with our functional equality because it doesn't exist. Positionally, we are all the children of God. I will never deny that. I will concede that over and over again. In fact, Moses himself conceded it to them. It's, that's where he says he was the most humble man on earth. He's like, okay, that, that technically that's true. Moses wasn't, he was going to say that you're you're rejecting my leadership and my authority and you're speaking evil of me in a roundabout way by claiming it yourself. By claiming not to be greater than Moses, but equal to Moses, you are speaking against him leading the people of Israel. I want you to understand that. They were not claiming to be superior to him, but equal to him. Miriam and Moses. And this God hears and says, oh, no, 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 no. This is rebellion against authority. This is speaking evil of the one that God has put in charge. Because he is better? No, because God chose to. God has called some to different leadership positions than others. Period. We can sit there and complain and bellyache about it because so and so, and the only one you're going to hurt is yourself because God hears it all. I want you to notice that. God heard what Miriam Aaron said, and knew why they said it, their claim to equality was not about position, but about function, and they thought that we're all the same, we're all children of God, and therefore, how can you, because God called him to it. And he didn't call you. You have a problem with that, your problem isn't with me. Your problem is with God. And that's why Moses says, your problem isn't with me. He's the humblest man <laughs> on earth, it says right there. Do you see it there? Um, Moses is very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. He wasn't going to do anything, but the Lord took care of this. Suddenly, it says, verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tabernacle of the So three came out, and the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud. Remember, the very thing that leads you and guides you, the good graces of God, Here we go, and stood in the door of the tabernacle, called Aaron and Miriam, and they went forward, and here's what he has to say. Hear now my words. I have been hearing your words. Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face even plainly and not in dark sayings, and he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Verse nine, so the anger of the Lord was aroused against them and he departed. The cloud departs from above the tabernacle. This is scary. it's gone. It didn't lead them anywhere, it just left. presence of God is gone what's left behind Miriam and Aaron are leprous disease is left behind judgment is left behind the very cloud that leads is now the cloud that condemns calls them out says I've heard you talk now you listen to me talk Moses listens to me all the time this way, but I'll give you one opportunity to hear me directly, f- straight out. Miriam became leprous, white snow. Aaron turned to her leper, and there she was a leper. Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us, in which we have done foolishly, in which we have sinned. Please not let her be as one of the dead whose flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. So Moses cried to the Lord, please heal her, O God, I pray. Then the Lord said to Moses, If your father if her father had but spit in her face, she would not would she not be ashamed seven days. Let her be shut out of the camp seven days and afterwards she may be received again. So the indication is, is that this Miriam Aaron Tandem was really led by Miriam. sound familiar? A woman that doesn't like not being able to lead. I'm equal positionally, I will defend that to death. Do you have the same Holy Spirit? Absolutely. Do you have the same function? No. Is that unfair? No. This is God's design, and he has made it that way. Your complaint, again, isn't against your pastor, your deacons, it's not against your husband, your father. Your complaint is against God. The same cloud that leads and shows the presence of God judges out of that same cloud came grace of giving us leadership like Moses, but out of the same cloud comes judgment. And we're not done. I mean, I can, we can keep going. Chapter 13, they sent spies in the land. We know what happens. They disobey. Do they speak evil of the dignitaries? Yes. Do they reject authority? Yes. Do they defile their flesh? Yes, all of it. godly men say, Let his, let's get up to Canaan and take it. God is with us. Let's go. And, and the people want to stone them to death. They've rejected the commandment of God given to Moses to go up and take the Canaan land. They have, they have spoken evil of Joshua and Caleb who are the glorious ones. They are the exalted ones. They are the good ones. And you're speaking evil. You want to stone them to death. And what is the response of God? Anger. Is your gracious God capable of anger? Because if he's not, he's not the God of the Bible. You've perverted him. And God is so angry, he says, this entire generation except for two people are going to die in this wilderness. They will not see my promised land. The two guys are the two guys you wanted to stone. The ones you want to destroy are the ones I want to glorify. I want to bless them, you want to destroy them. Because they followed after me, and you spoke evil of them. You rejected the authority of Moses over you, and you have defiled your flesh. Unless you think you can make up for it yourself, by the way, Israel says, we'll we'll make up for ourselves. They show up the next day, we're so sorry, so now let's go take them. Moses is like, what are you thinking? You think you can bypass the consequences of God just by being sorry? He said, you're going to die in the wilderness. You're going to die in the wilderness. And some of them died right then, trying to go up and take Canaan on their own strength because they didn't like the judgment of God. When I make a list of what has enraged God, I want to, I noted something. It all started with their mouth. They spoke. They spoke these words. They complained. They complained against God, against Moses. They ate while it was still in their mouth. Spoke against Moses here. Cried out against Caleb and Joshua. God didn't wait for it to take action. He said, that's enough. I've heard you. God is hearing you. He still hears us today. What is he hearing? What does he hear us say to one another? What does he hear you say? Whether you're in the presence of authority or not, whether the president or the governor or the mayor or the principal is here or not, the boss is here or not, What are you saying against these that God has put in authority? The pastor, the deacon, the husband, the father, the mother. What are you saying? God hears it. He hears what we say. And Jude is going to bring this out. And again, he's going to On that list of sins to avoid, it's going to be right at the top. It's going to be grumblers complaining and mouthing great swelling words. I'm reading Jude, verse 16, if you want to know. Flattering people. This is the way of error. This is the way of falsehood, is to open our mouths and complain and grumble and speak against those that God has put in our life for our benefit this is his grace you're talking against. And then you're living against it with your sin. And so our sinfulness against the grace of God begins with our mouths. And one of the very things that God was incited to wrath toward Israel was that you claimed equality. You claimed the right the authority that God's invested in some and not others you're not claiming equality of position you're claiming equality of function and this is error and Jude says I want to remind you this is what happened to Israel when they did these kinds of things is that what you're shooting for is that your objective? You've forgotten? And so when we hear the words, and we hear the, you know, we all, these words can be flattered and can be twisted to me sound wonderful and biblical and godly. And I had to deal with this as well on our tour. You know, oh, democracy is wonderful. I was like, can you have anything in the Bible that says democracy is wonderful? Because we're in Athens, that's where democracy started, real democracy. You know, and they were touting it, that it was so important to the spread of Christianity. I was like, what? Prove it. My understanding of God's word is democracy it stinks. Because the majority are never right. Unless they are unanimous in agreement with God. You see, we tout equality. And God says, are you... Rebelling against the authorities that i put in your life on this premise of position versus function. So be challenged. What does it mean that the grace of our God is, is turned into lewdness? It's not just immoral acts. So what we think of as lewdness of sleeping around and things like that. Lewdness starts with your mouth. God considers complaining lewd. He considers grumbling, lewd. Speaking against authorities, lewd. And this can take many forms. And we need to be careful of this to recognize I can evaluate a preacher. And by the way, there's a lot of different preachers. Some of them really bug me. But I don't judge them based upon that. it's, It's their personality, it's their delivery, it's whatever. Um, The only way that we examine false teachers isn't by their charisma or whether we like how they deliver, but their content. Are they speaking the truth in love? That's how we examine a teacher. Not whether we like him, not whether he's got a good personality, whether we get along with him. um, That's the premise of flattery. But Are we hearing the truth in love? That is how we evaluate it. So yes, we are called to discern between error and truth, between the false teacher and a true pastor teacher. But that does not give us permission to speak evil of them. As we're going to see as we get down to the next example next week. Let's go Lord. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for Reminding us to be careful with our words. And to be careful with a spirit and the attitude. That thinks we have the right to speak evil of your grace. By complaining, by grumbling against your provision, or by or the authorities that you put in our life. Lord, forgive us. Whether they be righteous or evil, we know that they are there by your design. Please, Lord, help us to tame our tongue. Lest you hear and grow angry at us. Christ Jesus' name. Amen.